I saw this great T-shirt recently. Do you remember the, the whole um, it, Disco Sucks movement back in the late 70s? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And the T-shirt said, Disco doesn't suck, you just can't dance. Yeah. <laughs> it was true though, wasn't it? So I'm actually going to kick off with a question about, about dancing, actually. That's how we're going to Are start. Are you? So I was thinking about it the other day. I was thinking about the dance floor at Heaven the first time I ever went there. And I mean, for me, it was like finding sun indoors. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it, been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. The notion of queer bodies playing and being at play and the notion of queer bodies being free and not being chastised or and we all had that you're queer you're a sissy you're you know all of that throughout my whole childhood and growing up to get to this space where people were just dancing and being and kissing and doing all of that stuff god love them they wanted to make connections quickly and fall in love uh, you know, and, and then it only seemed like a blink of an eye in terms of time before AIDS came along. My name is Mark Thompson, and I'm a 52-year-old social justice activist and this is We Were Always Here, a documentary series that explores the UK HIV epidemic through the voices of those who are most affected but are often missing from the mainstream narratives. I've spent the last year having conversations with a number of people who you will hear throughout the series. Taking inspiration from the AIDS quilt as a metaphor and piecing together that rich tapestry of our experience. This isn't the definitive history of the UK HIV epidemic, but it's our history. Moments from our lives that defined the epidemic for us. By then, there were lots of young gay people around who didn't take it seriously. When their friends started dying, then they took it seriously. It did feel like a death sentence to people. probably become aware of HIV when 
the test becomes widely available, the HTLV3 test. And my small, very small circle of friends start to talk about it. And these are older guys. My older, they're seven or eight years older than me. And they start to talk about this test becoming available. And I get a leaflet from one of them and think, yeah, they're going to do it. Why shouldn't I? I've got nothing to worry about here. In May 1983, doctors at the Pasteur Institute in France reported the discovery of a new retrovirus called lymphadenopathy, associated virus, or LAV, that could be the cause of AIDS. In April 1984, the National Cancer Institute announced that they had found the retrovirus HTLV3. In a joint conference with the Pasteur Institute, they announced that LAV and HTLV3 are identical and the likely cause of AIDS. A blood test was created to screen for the virus with the hope that a vaccine would be developed in two years. This, I mean, this is, Rock Hudson's died at this point, so I know what it is. You know, I, I know that it's, it's, it's AIDS and this virus causes it and it's horrible. But again, it presented AIDS as being over there that happened to rich white gay men not men like me or anybody in my community so it feels so distant to us i thought it would literally and i think a lot of us in that little small circle thought yeah we'll get a test and we could just keep on going with our lives and we'll probably never need to test again i mean that was one of the things we'll do this it will be done and we could just get back to our little lovely lives of hitting the Prince of Wales and going to the occasional house party, and there you go. And I'd go back to college, and I'd go on to do my studying. And then I booked the test. Booked my test, and it would have been early November 1986, and my friends all encouraged me to do it. I'd started seeing a guy that I kind of liked, and off I went to get the test, and I went for the test and didn't think anything of it at all, and you go to the hospital it's a great big old hospital and to get into what was then called the vd clinic it wasn't sti it wasn't all bougie and shiny you would go down in the basement through patient records which was really really dark and i do recall i'm just remembering this now that one of my friends from primary school her mum was working down <laughs> i remember this i was like oh my god it's mrs so-and-so shit but i didn't feel any shame and you go down through patient records and then there's the VD clinic and there was like a, a reception and you'd knock and women went in on the right and there was a space for men on the left. So it was, you know, genders were split straight down the line. And I went in and saw a health advisor for a brief chat, which they offered them. They called it pre-test counselling and had a chat with them about what the results might mean and you know how many partners i'd had and you've been at risk and all that sort of thing and i was like yeah fine whatever and they took the bloods and they took a lot of blood i'd never had blood taken before you know so all of that was brand new to me all of it was new and they said you'll get the results in two weeks you have to come back in two weeks on this date and we'll have your results so not emailing you to let you know or phoning you and that was it. And I went on my merry way. And I really genuinely don't think that I thought about it for those two weeks at all. And then I went back to get the results. And I'd booked in lunch with a friend of mine because I was like, yeah, I'll get these results and I'll see you in Oxford Street at whatever time it was. And there you go. 
and I told my mum that I was going to get my results. And I don't recall when or why I told her I was going for the test, but I did. And told her I was going to get the results that day and off I trotted with my little self. And it was 28th of November, 1986. For a nurse, if you're working in the wards, you don't see what happens in clinic. You don't see those first steps of when somebody gets a diagnosis. We did, you know, as a health advisor, you did that in-depth counselling beforehand to see whether somebody was ready for a, a positive diagnosis. And quite often people didn't come back. Jane Bruton is a nurse. She started working in HIV prevention in 1986. She now works at Imperial College London as a qualitative researcher looking at the patient experience of healthcare. And we didn't do anything about that. We didn't follow people up then. You know, why would they want their lives so disrupted? I remember one guy who had said to me, I'm the only one left from a dinner party that we had a year ago where there were 12 of us. And to have lost 11 friends and you're the next one with an AIDS diagnosis is just, it's hard to get your head around really because some families do tend to have tragedy and a number of cancer diagnoses or something. But no one would have ever said to me, I've lost 11 of my friends. That's what so was so hard to even understand what that would feel like, really. And of course, we had no treatment. It did feel like a death sentence to people, even thinking that that might be the diagnosis. And, and of course, that was really difficult. I suppose for me, it felt almost as difficult, you know, feeling terribly nervous about somebody coming in, knowing you've got to give, you've got to give them a positive diagnosis. And they called me in, it was the doctor, and I think his name was Dr. I call him Dr. Dol Dolomite, I can't remember what his name was, but he a doctor. And he was a very formal doctor. He was a lovely man, but he was in a white coat, which doctors don't wear now in HIV clinics, but it was very formal. Took me to his little office, he said to me, the results have come back positive for your HTLV3 test. And I just remember silence. And that's the thing about shock, is everything just goes quiet. And I don't recall him asking me if, I don't recall asking me if he's sure, I, don't, I didn't cry. Um, I was just absolutely stone cold, cold stunned. And then he got up and he came over and he gave me a hug. And that was really important that somebody held me. And, um, then we spoke about what it meant, that he doesn't know what it means. This, I've got this virus and we don't know what's gonna happen. We don't know how long you've got or how it's gonna develop, but it could be six months, it could be any, any time at all. And then sent me on my way. It will always stick with me, just that feeling of numbness and emptiness as I walked along Millbank. And it, it probably wasn't dark, but it felt really dark. It felt like a dark autumn afternoon. And just, I found my way to the West End somehow and saw my friend for lunch. And he could tell something was really, really wrong. And I told him, 
there and then, you know, that just got the results and this is what it meant. And he was really kind. And then off I went to Soho. I bought my mum the biggest bunch of flowers I could find. And went home. And obviously she was there and she asked me and I told her the results were negative. Oof, huge sigh of relief from her. Big hug, gave her the flowers and I shut down. And I'm in a really bad way. You know, I'm, I'm acting out, I'm moody, I'm not going to college. Maybe my first year of my A-levels and I'm just fucking up. And I'm, you know, I'm a serial dater, so I'm dating somebody else by now. It's a really lovely guy. And I've told him about my status. And he can see what I'm going through and he tells me, you need to talk to your mum. I can't hold all this, but you need to talk to your mum and she'll be okay. And again, it's uh, another night around the Thompson kitchen table and sit her down. And, but this time I've got something to tell her. Right now, I don't... Hello? Mum, you froze there. Nah! (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mark disappeared as he does when things like this happen. He disappeared for a couple of days and um, I eventually met with Mark and Mark told me, status. I remember saying to her, do you remember that test I went for? It actually came back positive. But I didn't say it like that. Whereas when I told her I was gay, I was like, I'm gay. And what of it? This time it was blubbering, floods of tears. I was shamed. I was so hurt for her. I was frightened as hell. I may well die within a few months or within a year, whatever. So it was heartbreaking for her and for me. That really shook my world. Again, I found myself back in a position where who do I turn to? You know, so all I, all I saw or imagined was death. It was a lot of negative publicity, but that, you know, there was no proper information. I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know of any organisations or anything like that at that time. I internalised a lot of it. She was really calm, incredibly calm. She didn't cry. She didn't raise her voice. None of that. But she did say, when I was blubbing and blubbing, she did say, stop, you're crying. Stop, you're crying. You're going to be okay. And she did what my mum always does. You know, she, she's really practical. She's like, you get run over by a bus tomorrow, you know. I mean, I never gave up hope, right? Yes, death was always at the back of my mind. And plenty of times I was afraid. But, you know, we've just got to live our lives the best way that we can, right? Because tomorrow's not promised to anybody. And, you know, at the time when I left his father, it wasn't easy because I'd given up work. I went back to study and having to care for two children and doing all of those things. 
and to have a son who you wasn't sure whether he was going to be here today or tomorrow. You just had to, I had just had to get up and do the things I had to do. Because I always described a curtain coming down. I always used to, because I was, you know, at school and I was quite, you know, I love theatre. And I used to say that once I got diagnosed, a curtain came down on my old life. And I think that prior to my diagnosis, that the world, I, the world was very safe for me. And then suddenly all of that changed because not only was it unsafe from a very, very real point of view that I could get ill, but also people knowing about my HIV status, there was threats of violence. And even if it wasn't directed at me and I kept it quiet, I just knew that the world had shifted on its axis. And, you know, you look for a very, very different lens. I think that's what it was, looking for a different lens and you just saw it very differently. You know, like one of those kaleidoscope things you have when you're a kid and you shake it and one minute the shapes are that and you shake it again and suddenly the shapes were entirely different in my life and the colours were different. I was angry and hurt and frightened, but there was also a bit of denial at the time. And if all, you know, if I just locked it away, then I'd be all right, you know, and be the young man that I could. So, you know, I fell in love. You know, I, I met boys. I, I went partying and danced and tried to embrace life because I didn't know when that life was going to be taken away from me. And it wasn't a conscious decision. I, I wasn't that person who went, right, I'm going to, you know, cash in my pensions and I'm going to travel the world and I'm going to do these fabulous things. It was like, right, I've got to go. I'm going to go, right, I don't want to go to college no more because what's the point of doing A-levels? Go and find a job, earn some good money, right, do that. You like nice clothes? Go and buy nice clothes. You want to go on holiday? Go on holiday. Those were the things that I decided that I was going to do. I wasn't going to see the world, but I'm damn well going to have a week in Greece, right? Um, that was what I wanted to do. Didn't save because what was the point of saving? So there was those little things which helped me just go, you're going to get through this. But the fear is ramping up now, you know, because more and more people are getting tested and more and more people are disappearing, you know. So I'm starting to hear stories of guys that I knew six months ago who aren't around. We're so-and-so. I don't know, he's disappeared. Or, did you hear about Thingy? No, died. He's in hospital. And you're just starting to hear these little pockets, these little pinpricks in the fabric around you. One of my uh, friends that I knew when I was about 16, 17, and we became like huge confidants to each other. Juno Roche is a writer and campaigner with a background in teaching. He really was the one that, he was the first person that told me about the word transgender, was the first person that told me that I probably wasn't gay. First person to get me to kind of experiment with kind of clothes and makeup and different things. And uh, anyway, then our kind of paths drifted apart. I kind of went off. But we didn't see each other for a time and then I was in went to heaven and um and they were beautiful by the way 
Not that that matters. And I don't know that they were conventionally beautiful, but they were beautiful through and through because they were so brave. But I went to heaven and, um, and I saw them over the other side of the bar. I look across the bar and I think, fuck me, is that them? Where, what's happened? And they were on their own, which they've never been on their own. They'd always been with people. They'd always been like the center. If they were, they were the center of the of the kind of small world of whatever the world was. And um, and I looked over and I saw them, and their cheekbones. I wrote about them a while ago, and I said that their cheekbones were wearing them. That was all that was wearing them was their cheekbones. The only thing that was holding them together was their cheekbones. And they came over. They saw me. Came over, and we just hugged. I mean, it seems like it seems absurd now, but in the middle of heaven, we just hugged in that upstairs bar. We just hugged. And I knew I didn't want to let them go. And, but there was nothing of them. Like I can feel them now. There was absolutely nothing of them at all. And, um, and they went. And as he left, he said to me, it was worth it. <laughs> then I said, I mean, I lost track again. And then I found out that they died maybe like a couple of months, a few months after that. So for me, that's when it kind of hit home. By the end of 1986, 85 countries had reported 38,401 cases of AIDS to the World Health Organization. I think it rolled over us like a fucking steamroller. Outside was still hated us <laughs> and in our spaces there was this thing wiping us out that it's really difficult to explain to people but I remember a friend being out with us dancing one week and then the next week their body having been kind of knocked to the ground but we were all terrified we were all shit scared we didn't want to catch it we didn't know no one knew anything until 2020 most people wouldn't have had any touch point for that feeling of uncertainty surrounding the disease the unanswered questions, the anxiety of the unknown, the fear of death. In a way, us people from that time, you all know this, we've lived through this moment in history. We've lived through this before. And it was a damn sight more scary for us then because no fucker cared if we lived or died. No one cared. So there was no one out clapping. There was no one putting a banner out or a rainbow out. People were writing headlines like, ship them off and shoot them. By this time, when I became aware of my own infection, then I became aware of it in the world. And so where previously it was background noise, but really quite background noise, now it was full stereo sound constantly around me. I'm seeing newspaper headlines, I, I'm seeing, you know, gas the gaze, I'm seeing HIV stories, I'm seeing news reports about what's going on in Africa, you know, and, and I'm used to seeing stories come from the African continent, because this is like a year after Live Aid. So I'm used to seeing stories of famine and decimated bodies, but this was different. You know, they're in hospital beds and that scared the shit out of me because these are black people and I couldn't avoid that. It felt like this is a tsunami left, right and center. And I remember being at cinema and the tombstone ad came on. I'd been with my friends who didn't know that I was positive and sinking in my seat. Because here I was living, breathing my life, and here was a campaign telling me about death. And 
this awful thing which is going to infect the world. And I was, and many people like me, were vectors of disease. And there was no way to separate my infection and me as an individual from that tombstone. And that was hell, it was absolute hell. In the next episode of We Were Always Here. It was confusing because they were dark, they were, they were ominous messages. It's all about death and protecting yourself. What I observed uh, during that time was that, first of all, people were terrified in the African communities. People were terrified of, of being found to be HIV positive. We Were Always Here was presented by me, Mark Thompson. It was produced by Hannah Walker-Brown. The production assistant was Rory Boyle. This is a Broccoli Production.